fact, it is quite certain that uh, man is born with a certain functioning, a certain way of functioning, a certain pattern of behavior. And uh, that is expressed in the form of archetypal images or archetypal forms. For instance, the way in which a man should behave is given by an archetype. Yeah. And therefore, you see, the primitives tell such stories. Uh, a great deal of education goes through storytelling. The world hangs on a thin thread. And that is the psyche of man. Nowadays, we are not threatened by elementary catastrophes. There is no such thing as an H-bomb. That is all man's doing. Yeah. We are the great danger. The psyche is the great danger. What if something goes wrong with the psyche? And so you see, it is demonstrated to us in our days what, what the power of the psyche is of man. How important it is to know something about it, but we know nothing about it. You said it all, Papa Jung. Thusly, it's essential that in this eternal now, we discuss your recently released black books. It might be humanity's only hope as the world hangs on a thin thread, and the human psyche is the great danger. Don't you see this, my beloved true seekers? The Archons are atomizing the collective mind of our culture. Completely. That's the real PSYOP. Always has been. No government administration change or economic pivot or health reset is going to change that. No savior or demagogue is going to lead us back to sanity. No outward force will save us. None. It's too late. We are on the precipice to becoming as demented as the demiurge in the Gnostic myth. And that's what Yaldibaldi has always wanted since the day he came out of Sophia's violent womb and became deranged with abandonment issues. What was done to me created me. Like an equation. What was done to me was monstrous. And I created a monster. Who are you? I'm the monster's mother. Our society is too close to permanent brain damage, believing there is only one dark side of the moon. As the show Legion states, human beings are the only animal that forms ideas about their world. We perceive it not through our bodies, but through our minds. We must agree on what is real. Because of this, we are the only animal on Earth that goes mad. A reality is just what we tell each other it is. Sane and insane could easily switch places if the insane were to become the majority. You would find yourself locked in a padded cell, wondering what happened to the world. 
Meat sacks no longer agree on any reality, any news event for that matter. Meat sacks simply project and deflect and infect others with the mind killer that is fear. We buy into narratives of that wickedness in high places and care little to write our own gospel and live our own myth. As Jung said, and relating back to the intro about healthy minds being made of narrative, the reason for evil in the world is that people are not able to tell their stories. Now I've gotten word that a child is using his imagination, and I've come to put a stop to it. But you can tell your story, regardless of what the black iron prison throws at you. You are the freaking outcast, you sons and daughters of Hermes, the god of thieves, and Sophia, the goddess of smugglers. You've been eating nervous breakdowns for breakfast since you were born. Madness and laughter are the unyielding wax that binds your wings as you rise to the sun of imagination. You know that eternity hasn't gone anywhere. It's still there for the taking. And you know, as Peter Gabriel sang in the carpet crawlers, you gotta get in to get out. Is this all real? Or is it just happening inside my head? Of course it's happening inside your head, Harry. Why should that mean that it's not real? Or as the book of Thomas the Contender states, For he who has not known himself has known nothing. But he who has known himself has at the same time already achieved knowledge about the depth of the all. You know all of this, and you're very different from others. Have always been. The psychotic drowns where the mystic swims. You're drowning. You know the psyche holds the answers as you hope meat sacks will stop damaging their brains. Poor lost social media souls, keyboard warriors, and partisan whores. You know. And as painful as it is, you won't give up teaching others that, as the Cheshire Cat said, imagination is the only weapon in the war against reality. That we can, as a collective, tell better stories. Our plight is best expressed from this quote from the Gospel of Philip. Now, Whoever has become free through gnosis is a slave on account of love towards those who have not yet taken up the freedom of gnosis. Guess we're slaves to love, as Brian Ferry sang while Kim Bassinger stripped. We Johnny Cash bodhisattvas. The world has heard us, but we love those meat sacks. And in that love is our freedom, our further awakening. The first noble truth is life is suffering. But the Buddha preached joyful participation in the sorrows of the world. As mentioned, we will be discussing Jung's black books. Our astral guest is an individual who has given much of his life in the charity and the awakening of others. 
I assure you there is none better in this terra damnata when it comes to distilling the gnosis of Jung. That is Lance Owens, Bishop of the Ecclesia Gnostica and author of Jung in Love. Get ready for those contraband truths that will get you closer to finding your authentic self. Novel insights on Abraxas, the central tenets of the Swiss magician, and much more. As a bonus, I'll include my previous interview with Lance, where he discusses Jung's Red Book and the Gnostic pedigree of J.R.R. Tolkien. This might be the most important interview of the year. <laughs> Reverse psychology. You really are a good shrink, Doctor. Carl Jung already tried that. Stop talking! My unconscious mind hates you! I often quote Jason Louvre back when he was active on the sinking ship that is Twitter, saying that the greatest decision in the century is choosing ecstasy over entertainment. Some of you message me frustrated at what rituals or lifestyles you must take to instill ecstasy. That feeling of being outside of your monkey brain and in rapture with divinity. That intoxicating happiness. A world without rules and controls, without borders or boundaries. A world where anything is possible. Don't think of it that way, but work backward. You have all been gripped by ecstasy, and in truth, it is your natural state of being. Maybe it was when you beheld a molten sunset or made love, or maybe it was when you were in the zone while working out or expressing art. Maybe it was a certain song or memory or act from your child. You felt a golden supernova energy bursting from your chest lifting out from your skin. Your feet almost left the ground. You knew for a second that death was irrelevant, that nothing could hurt you because you were everywhere at once, but paradoxically, you wordlessly understood your deepest non-programmed self and your purpose. You giggled at the absurdity of desire and that chimera that is linear time. You were you as you were God. My father says that almost the whole world is asleep. Everybody you know, everybody you see, everybody you talk to. He says that only a few people are awake and they live in a state of constant, total amazement. So think of working backwards in that Gnostic sensibility of always returning to the past to recreate scenes and find new story insights. As Jung also said, What did you do as a child that made the hours pass like minutes? Her reign lies the key to your earthly pursuits. Got us in the rain. What led you to ecstasy? What put you in the zone? It's there. It's right there. I promise you. Nothing else matters. It's your story and your dream and your liberation. Ah, your host, Miguel Garner, here at Aeon Bite, will continue offering those contraband truths as your support and feedback help me too in choosing ecstasy over entertainment. Thank you. 
Stop denying your potential. You are amazing, can do so many wonders, and that's a cosmic fact. As Hemingway said, there is nothing noble in being superior to your fellow man. True nobility is being superior to your former self. As Jung said in his Red Book, there is only one way, and that is your way. There is only one salvation, and that is your salvation. Why are you looking for help? Do you believe it will come from outside? What is to come will be created in you and from you. Hence, look into yourself. Do not compare. Do not measure. No other way is like yours. All other ways deceive and tempt you. You must fulfill the way that is in you. You always got to follow the truth. Even if it brings a whole damn thing crashing down around you. Let us do our interview with Lance. But before, O oh, omniscient narrator of Legion, tell us about how social media and the internet have become today nothing more than Plato's cave, upgraded by the Archons. The Empire never ended. And now we come to the most alarming delusion of all. Imagine a cave where those inside never see the outside world. Instead, they see shadows of that world projected on the cave wall. The world they see in the shadows is not the real world. But it's real to them. If you were to show them the world as it actually is, they would reject it as incomprehensible. Now what if, instead of being in a cave, you were out in the world, except you couldn't see it? Because you weren't looking. Because you trusted that the world you saw through the prism was the real world. But there's a difference. You see, unlike the allegory of the cave, where the people are real and the shadows are false, here, other people are the shadows, their faces, their lives. This is the delusion of the narcissist, who believes that they alone are real because other people are just shadows, and shadows don't feel, because they're not real. But what if everyone lived in caves? Then no one would be real, not even you. Unless one day you woke up and left the cave, how strange the world would look after a lifetime of staring at shadows. This is the Aeon Byte interview, and with us we have the pleasure of being joined by Lance Owens. Lance, how are you doing, and thanks for coming on the show. 
I'm doing fine in the age of COVID. Thank you. <laughs> yes, the best you can do with what we have. <laughs> I almost think of that speech of uh, Frodo and Gandalf in the Lord of the Rings. All we can do is the best we can with the time we're allotted. But uh, yep. that's a story you know very well, and we've discussed in the past on Aeon Byte. Uh, but today we will be discussing Jung and some of the new discoveries. But first, we are also joined by Van Sachi. Vance, how are you doing? I'm fine today. I'm looking forward to an interesting show, Miguel. Wonderful. It will be interesting as we are discussing Carl Jung and his black books that were released October and sort of got lost with all the other uh, craziness happening in Western culture. So why don't we just get to it, Lance? What is going on with these black books and how do they relate to the red book and uh, the seven sermons to the dead, which is a fan favorite of Aeon Bite? Okay, so the hubris of trying to talk about the black books in detail in an hour interview or so is, you know, it's extreme. So uh, I guess the first thing I would say is that if you don't know who, you know, C.G. Jung, Carl Gustav Jung is, uh, forget it. Just, you know, go away. This is not for you. Okay. And, but I would say that if you do know about Jung, if you really have interest in the man, this is very important. And second, I would say that before you even start wondering about the black books, you need to first look at the red book, <clears throat> Liber Novus which was published uh, 10 years ago in October 2009. Uh, and you need to read the introduction there by Sonu Shamdasani and, and investigate that big volume, which was really the center of the creative work of his life. And then, having met that, you're ready for what we're going to talk about now, which is a step backward into the source material that became the text of Liber Novus, the Red Book, and the events that motivated those writings. So, you know, the, Jung, Jung was an extraordinary guy. That's all I can say. Those who, I mean, the more you know about the guy, the more you know how extraordinary, how unusual he was. From a very early age, Jung had a certain, um, shall we say, hip, hypnagogic ability, a, ability to visualize, visionary ability. He had a sense of spirit presences in the world. His, uh, his you know, grandfather's name is Pricefork. He was the head of the, the Swiss Reformed Church in Basel. He used to have visions. In fact, you know, Jung's grandfather, Pricefork, had his mother sit behind him while he was writing his Sunday sermons to watch out for spirits that might invade his space wow. while he was writing his sermons, you know. So this sort of spiritism, this sort of sense of an otherness came to Jung. I mean, Jung in late life said he thought his great-grandfather Pricefork had laid an unusual egg in his nest with this uh, spiritualism. And Jung, you know, when he was writing his dissertation uh, for medical school, he centered it on his experiences with a cousin, Helena Pricefork, who was a, uh, a medium who conducted seances for the family. And he was quite impressed 
with some of the genuine material that seemed to be coming out of Helena, Helia, as he called her. So, you know, this is an issue in, in Jung's life. So he went through this period of, you know, only five years, really, of, of association with Freud from 1907 to 1911. He went through a significant break with all of this conceptual stuff. He came to the conclusion that all the stuff he had been saying about the soul, about his soul, was just concept. It was just dead words that he didn't even know what he was talking about, that he had to meet it himself. He came to a point where he, he felt that all of the science of his prior 10, 12 years as a doctor, I mean, he became a doctor in 1901, 1900, that he had been playing with concepts and ideas and had not come to an experiential reality of what this thing was. And he was in conflict in, you know, 1910, 11, 12, up through 1913. He was, you know, his, his sense of, of, of his lack of love in his life and his love relationships was growing. There was a whole lot of turmoil. And finally, he just came to this point where he had to break, where he knew something was waiting him. Uh, something inside, some depth that he needed to probe if he would ever understand what the soul was, what the psyche soul was. Um, and so he sat down at his desk after a, a period of months and months of turmoil, dreams of questions about what he'd been doing with his life. He sat down at his desk. He took out an old journal, an old school book journal, and he put it on the desk before him, November 12th, 1913, and he started. And the first thing he wrote was, my soul, my soul. Where are you? That was the beginning. He was searching for his soul, and he had no idea what it was. He had no idea what it would say, where it would lead him. He had no idea if he would even contact it. That is the beginning of the Black Books. That is also the beginning of the Red Book, Jung's transcribed version of all that happened to him. So there it was. November 12th, 1913. On the page prior to that, he later wrote, and this is in the black books and the published journals. He wrote, a huge task lay before me. I saw its enormous size and its value and meaning escaped me. I got into the dark. I groped along my path. That path led me inward and downward, end quote. And that's really what happened. Over the next, uh, from November 12th through uh, the spring, maybe March or so, he started having these encounters with his soul, which eventually became visionary. I mean, originally it was like little words, phrases would come to him. He would sit in his room at night, usually after dinner apparently, and he would sit there waiting, striving to get some communication from this otherness that he felt was within him and perhaps even without him as well. It was it, this soul force. And eventually it started to come. In December, it started opening up with words. And then around Christmas of 1912, it just burst on him in an incredible three-night visionary uh, event, which he calls the Mysterium, in which he met Elijah and Salome. This is the stuff that is the beginning of the Red Book.
from that night onward through January and February, almost nightly, the man would go to his room alone after dinner and sit there and petition communication with this otherness, this realm. And what he wrote became, is, the black books. These little, there are seven of them, these little seven school book journals. The first one actually has a brown cover. All the rest of them have black covers. The only reason they're called the black books is because the covers are black. Um, he would sit there and whatever came, he would write. And if you look at the black books, the, the, the published journals now, the seven volumes, which weigh, I don't know, 20 pounds in, in some, the published journals come with a complete uh, facsimile of the original journals, you know, print, exact size, the handwriting is there, and then following the, that facsimile of the actual journals themselves, which is beautifully done, beautifully published, comes the translation that was per, uh, performed by uh, Sono Shamdasani and, uh, and John Peck um, to, uh, to the text itself. And Martin Liebscher was also uh, working on the translation. So what you have here is actually his journal of this event. And so then nightly, I mean, from you know December onward, almost nightly through February, he would enter into these states. And you know, the, the question every you know, every person has asked for all the decades since, since we knew very little about it, was what the hell of a man was doing. And now that we have the journals in front of us and you look at this, you're still left with the question, <laughs> yeah. what the hell was <laughs> the, the man hell? doing? <laughs> I, it, it's, uh, you know, sometimes there are these introductory remarks in the journal that are not included in the Red Book, but introductory remarks where he's trying to prepare himself and then something opens. And throughout this period of the winter of 1913, 14, there are periods where what happens is extraordinarily visual especially the Mysterium, the stuff that happened with, with Salome and Elijah around, uh, uh, around Christmas 1913, highly visual. It's clear that the man had entered a visionary state. He had stepped through a doorway. He was there, and he was participating in the visionary universe. That's the only way to put it. Um, this happened on several other occasions throughout the winter of 1913-14. There were several other events documented in the black books and then subsequently transcribed into the red book, which are highly, highly visual. And you sit there and as he describes the scenery around him, the personages and the conversations, there's no doubt that he's actually visually in a space, an imaginative space. Then there are other sections which come more like a dialogue of writing without so much visual material. It's like he's talking to somebody and that autonomous personage is speaking back. He has no control over the dialogue. He's questioning, he's asking, and sometimes he's arguing, and sometimes he's doubting what he's told, like you're lying to me, this couldn't be, those sorts of things. So this intensity went on throughout the winter of 1913-14. By March, April, spring, it slowed down. He filled, uh, during that period, he filled almost five of these, four of these journals, these little school journals with handwriting. And this is exactly what happened. If you look at these journals, which are now published, the black books are this in, you know, in uh, facsimile form. If you look at these, you know, you can flip through the pages. 
There's his handwriting. There are hardly any corrections. Occasionally he'll cross out a misspelled word or cross out a word and write two words in its place. There's no editing. This is just the flow of what was happening to him night by night. Without editing, without addition, without change, that's it. And then by, uh, by the time the light returns to the world in, in spring and summer, it ends. And throughout this period, I mean, Jung is like asking himself, what the hell is going on? What has happened to me? Uh, what is this? And is this a psychosis? Does this just have to do with me? Is it just me? Is this my fracture? My trauma? And then in August 1st of 1914, World War I, then known as the Great War, breaks out. And he looks back at what has happened to him over that winter of 1913-14 and sees all these ominous presentments of a coming catastrophe, of war, of death, of destruction, of a new age, a new ion, a new change, a new God image. And when the war breaks out, he feels as if all that has happened to him has been a presentiment, a prophecy of a state in the world. And at that point, he sees that what's happened to him is actually not just of personal import, but is actually a statement that needs to be shared with the world, that something had happened to him that he had seen into a depth, into the depths, and learned things that were of import to the world in general. And at that point, with these black book journals, these little you know, school journals, not so little sometimes, filled with his writing, he then sits down in September of, starting in September of 1914, and starts to write his story. And that became the Red Book, Libra Novus. He, over the next eight months to 12 months, uh, wrote a thousand page handscript, you know, handwritten transcript of his journals. He entered many entries from his journals, and then to that he appended commentary, what he thought about what had happened to him. So there are two layers, this layer of, this is what is written in my black books and those things he transcribed pretty precisely with minor editing, and then he added his perception of what this meant. That is the Red Book. Okay, so now what we have are the journals themselves in addition to the Red Book. The Red Book, in the Red Book, he, you know, about 50% or more of what's in the Black Book journals is presented quite accurately in the Red Book, Libra Novus, this huge opus. But there's more in the Black Books. They're his own little thoughts about things. Uh, his entry into the visionary state, his state of mind as he tried to enter into the visionary state, all that's in the black books. And it's all there in, in his handwriting. If you can read German, you can read his handwriting. It's pretty clear. And then with the translation and notes. So that's what the black books are. Now the issue is that the red book, Libra Novus, really only included material through about 1916. And most of it is material from 1914 and before. This visionary event of Jung did not stop in 1916. It kept going. It kept going and going and going through the 1920s. So in the Black Books, in the last two volumes of the Black Books, you have Jung's dialogues with his soul, with this imaginative realm proceeding on through the 1920s all the way up to, you know, the end actually of the 1920s. 
So the black book journals are the background, the, the primary layer of actual visionary material, some of it highly visual, some of it more automatic writing and dialogue that happened to Jung from which he um, developed this text, which became the Red Book Libra Novus, which has now been in publication for 11 years. Well said, and I think that's a good summary. But a couple of questions on this, Lance, as people probably want to know is, first of all, it's not just, uh, and we, you and I have talked about it, and it's been recorded, this is not just a visionary. This was a also paranormal. Some Some realm was open because there were you might say, paranormal events that happen in Jung's household, right? Knocking on doors, ghost visitations, I mean, something from another world. Yeah, uh, you know, I don't know how to parse the terms visionary and paranormal, because I think visions are, in most people's... Yeah, that's true. Yeah, something paranormal. The thing is, the man was alive to events. So let me get into that, because you're actually pointing at something that happened in January of 1916, which is critically important. So let me just go back and give a little introduction to that before I move forward. There are all sorts of things happening in Jung's life, uh, synchronicities, we call them, things that would happen that would awaken him to events. And uh, so after 1914, the Black Books end for a period of almost a year. There's no more vision no more uh, nightly uh, you know, writings. That's the period in which he writes this thousand page manuscript of what had happened to him in the summer, excuse me, in the winter of 1913-14. And that's the text of what became the Red Book, the first major part of it. And when he had finished that and he had bought the big Red Book into which he was now transcribing this in beautiful calligraphic text and adding illustrations, suddenly it starts again in the late summer of 1915, he, a, a bird flies down from the sky into the water to catch a fish, and suddenly, all of a sudden, Philemon, his spirit guide, is, is back with him. During this period, there are a lot of troubling things going on in the world. I mean, obviously, it's World War I, and in, in, on July 1st of 1915, the Battle of the Somme had begun. It, you know, there were a million casualties over the next five months of the Battle of the Somme. One of the people there was John Ronald Rule Tolkien, and along with his two best friends, both of whom who died in that battle. It was a bloodbath. And in Switzerland, you know, they were aware of this. Throughout the second period, it starts in you know, August. Throughout the second period of uh, September, October, November through December, these visitations are returning, and the things that are coming to you are, are the dead. Jung is meeting dead, and the dead are coming to him and saying, we want your blood. I mean, they're coming almost vampirically. Some of this stuff is absolutely chaotic. These events, these recordings in the fall of um, 1913, or excuse me, 1915, the fall of 1915 through Christmas 1915, some of this stuff is really dark. It's like he's he's being invaded by spirits of death. And at the same time, this battle, the Battle of the Somme is going on through November of that 1915 and a million casualties. It's just incredible bloodshed. And he's suffering, you know, in parallel with that. And these are these are the entries in the, in the Black Books in that period. Um, at this time, from January 
1915 onward, Jung is trying to figure out what the hell has happened to him. And he starts looking for parallels in history, what has happened to him, this visionary, paranormal, if you wish, um, experience, this communication with an otherness, another realm, he takes this very, very seriously real and objective. So has this happened to others? And amongst the things he starts reading is he, he starts reading Gnostic material. And this is well documented and uh, he did this in, in January and October. He read extensively in Gnostic material. And one of the books apparently he read was a book by a fellow by the name of Wolfgang Schultz called Documents of the Gnosis, Documente de Gnosis, uh, in German. And this book was essentially a, a, a recension of, uh, of GRS Mead's um, Fragments of a Faith Forgotten. They, you know, they were, and you read Fragments of a Faith Forgotten as well. And when you look at Documente de Gnosis, you find that Jung has just outlined and marked zillions of pages in this book. And he actually uses a chapter of this book as this basis of the first chapter of, of his book called Psychologically, uh, Psychological Types, which he, pub which he writes in 1919 and publishes in 1921. I mean, it was an important book. Jung is sinking into Gnostic material during this time. At the same time, he is feeling invaded by the dead by dead things, by dead things wanting his attention, wanting, in fact, to drink his blood. So um, after reading the Gnostic material, some of these Gnostic, some of these Gnostic themes are entering into his own interpretation of what has happened to him. And this is crucial to understand. I wrote a long paper about this. It's the foreword to a book called The Search for Roots by... Uh, uh, Alfred Ribby. It's yeah, a, you know, about, book. yeah, it's and the my 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 forward is about 35, 40 pages long. It's online. You can find it at academia.edu you, or you can buy the book, whatever. But this is uh, I stand by this, you know, summary of what was happening to Jung during this period when he was first discovering Gnosis. And these visionary materials, which have been somewhat chaotic before that, start becoming increasingly centered on well, you know, you could call it metaphysics if you wish. The experience of the divine. What is divinity? Um, he was, and these writings from, you know, I'd say late December and uh, 1915 through January 1916, which all lead up to the key document, the Seven Servants to the Dead, which was written at the end of January and early February of 1916. There's this real concentration, increasing concentration on you know, I, I hesitate to use the word theology because it's not. It's like this experience of divinity. What is divinity? What is this fact? And terms start entering into Jung's diary like pleroma and abraxas, words, and, words from uh, Gnostic material that he had encountered over the prior year. And it's quite apparent that this Gnostic material had a, a strong influence upon him. So like in, in uh, January 1916, let me just read you this little part sure. uh, from the, the Black Books. And this is a very long section. Uh, I just, this is an abstract, abstracting. And this has to do with this image of Abraxas, which appears later. Uh, and this is the soul addressing Jung. And she addresses Jung really in the voice of Sophia. 
And so she starts. She says, the one God to whom worship is due is in the middle. You should worship only one God. The other gods are unimportant. Abraxas is to be feared. Therefore, it was a deliverance when he separated himself from me. Now, in that term alone, you see the Sophianic myth of the separation of Abraxas yeah, from indeed. Sophia. Yeah, yeah. So he goes on. I continue. You do not need to seek him. He will find you, just like Eros. He is the god of the cosmos, extremely powerful and fearful. He is the creative drive. He is form and formation, just as much matter and force. Therefore, he is above all the light and dark gods. He tears away souls and casts them into procreation. He is the created and creative. He is the God who always renews himself in days, in months, in years, in human life, in ages, in peoples, in the living, in heavenly bodies. He compels. He is unsparing. If you worship him, you increase his power over you. Thereby it becomes unbearable. You will have a dreadful trouble getting clear of him. The more you free yourself from him, the more you approach death, since he is the life of the universe. But he is also universal death. Therefore you fall victim to, victim to him again, not in life, but in dying. So remember him. Do not worship him, but also do not imagine that you can flee him, since he is all around you. You must be in the middle of life, surrounded by death on all sides, stretched out like one crucified you hang in him, the fearful, the overpowering. But you have in you the one God wonderful, beautiful, and kind, the solitary, star-like, unmoving, he who is older and wiser than the Father, he who has a safe hand, who leads you among all the darknesses and death scares of dreadful Abraxas. He gives you joy and peace. He is beyond death and beyond what is subject to change. He is no servant and no friend of Abraxas. This one God is kind, the loving, the leading, the healing. To him all your love and worship is due. To him you should pray. You are one with him. He is near you, nearer than your soul. I could go on. This is, I mean, this is just a small excerpt of this material that bursts forth in mid-January. And you, of course, you see these Gnostic motifs oh, yeah, entering into this visionary material. And this is not what Jung is saying. This is what Jung's soul voice is dictating to him. See, that's how the, these black book journals go. I mean, Jung will ask a question or engage in a dialogue with this soul force or with Philemon or another figure, and that person, personage power will then speak to him. And if you look at the journal, if you look at this transcription in the journal, there's no correction there. There's no editing. He is transcribing it as it comes. So in January, this whole thing is, is just breaking loose. There's, a, there's one you know, very 
strange and you know, it, it, insightful comment in the book right in, in January where he writes just one line. As in the midst of all of this dialogue, he writes this. I kiss you, you book of light and life. As he's looking at his journal, that's what he says. I kiss you, you book of light and life. Can you imagine that? I mean, that's that's his experience. That's what's happening to him. That's the importance with which he takes this this material. But he's coming to a summation after all the chaos of the winter of thirteen fourteen. After writing uh, the text of what will become the Red Book, after beginning transcribing this thing in calligraphic form with art into the big red volume we know as the Red Book Libra Novus, this is this stuff is now going on again. And, and then in January 18, it starts seeming like he needs to come to some sort of summation. And I mean, I, I, you know, there are many things I could read here, but it's like, you know, he, in, on January 18th, a couple days after that prior thing, he writes this in his journal. And, you know, this sounds a bit crazy, but, you know, this is what's going on. He says, I see a wide meadow, this is January 18th, 1916, and blue mountains, and smoke sweeps over. A sea of fire rolls close in. It is setting the towns and villages on fire, breaking through the valleys, burning the forests. I go before it in a burning robe with singed hair, a crazy look in my eyes, a parched tongue, a hoarse voice, I forge ahead and announce what approaches. I cross the mountains and go into every quiet valley and stammer words of fright and proclaim the fire's agony. Men flee in horror from me since I bear the marks of the fire. They do not see the fire. What fire, they ask, what fire? I stutter, I stammer. Help us, my God and carry us over. My God, prepare me. My God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, horrendous silence, my soul, speak. For heaven's sake, speak, speak. And then his soul says, you have waited long enough. The holy fire is blazing. Step into the flames. Step into the light. Bring up what lay in the dark. Proclaim what is to come. And then Jung responds, what should I proclaim? The fire? And the soul answers, the flame that blazes over your head. Look up. The sky is redden. And then this all starts coming home. I mean, this conflict with the dead. And then around Saturday, it is a Saturday, January 29th, everything starts coming home. And it seems like his life, and you talked about the paranormal, it seems like his life is being invaded by the dead, by the devil. In Memory Streams Reflection, Jung tells the story of this event. As they were sitting at dinner and the doorbell rang, he went to the door and there was no one there and the house was invaded with you know spirits. That's how it's told in summary uh, in Memory Streams Reflections. But in fact, it's you know, all this other stuff has been going on for the prior three weeks. 
And then on January 29th in that evening, apparently this stuff has been happening to him. That there was a knock on the door. And in his journal, and we get the, you know, we get the primary account where he's addressing his soul, asking her, what the hell's going on? So this is January 29th. He says, my soul, I know you have summoned the devil. He has sent his burdensome vapors. It was he who knocked at my door with his herd of dark companions. I could smell them in the air. What came over you that you played that prank on me? Why the devil? So, you know, this is, you know, this is him in his journal saying, this happened. My soul, you sent this to me, these herd of dark companions. What the hell is going on? And the soul responds to break open what is locked. And Jung answers, what? My mysteries? They are already way too exposed. And the soul responds, no, your iron doors. Jung responds, that this wicked herd can break into my garden? Should I be plundered and thrown onto the rubbish? And, you know, here we are, you know, this, he really does have a sense that he's been invaded by the devil, by the dead, by burdensome, by a herd of dark companions, you know, paranormal. He is fighting with his soul over why this has happened. And so, you know, his uh, soul responds, what are you talking about? Let the devil get to work. And then, um, I mean, this goes on. Uh, you know, he's struggling with what's going on. I could read more of this. I'll stop right there. And you can his, read more if you want. This is okay. Wonderful. I will. I'm, I've got chills just listening to this. My hairs are standing up. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so then Jung writes in his journal. This is all. This is January 29th, uh, 1916. This is when the seven sermons start. He writes, "I'm tired." I don't want any surprises. Speak, and here he addresses his soul. Speak, what is your plan? What about the devil and this nightly haunting? And the soul responds, we came to perform the work, the mysterious, the invisible. We cooked the air around you. We mixed it with fine, narcotic, confusing, and beguiling vapors. We prepared the necessary emanation, long missing and anxiously sought. Let us take effect. Spirits will do the work, not you. Be quiet and let us take charge. We will strike for sure. Dwell quiet, quietly, calmly, we'll poke the embers. Build calmly, stone by stone, we will do our bit, don't worry. The fire glows already. Jung responds, my God, can you see the sacrilege? And then the next night, I mean, this is, that's the 29th. The next night is a Sunday. It's January 30th. Jung says, it's tearing me apart. Since you have brought the devil, I'm getting tormented hellishly. You need to bring some relief. Speak a redeeming word. What's up with the spirits? They're tearing at me. And I have difficulties standing. 
You talked about paranormal. You see mm-hmm. how real this is to him? Yeah. Speak a redeeming word. What's up with the spirits? They're tearing at me. And I have difficulties standing. Now, you have to understand, the man has been standing all day. He had dinner with his family. He's been seeing patients every day. This guy is not babbling in a corner. But when he enters this space, he is in a different space. I mean, that's you just have to understand as you read these things that the man's life is segmented into a day life in which he's seeing patients, writing, dealing with his family, having dinner, dealing with complex domestic affairs, and then he enters this private space of the evening hours where he is actually there. They're tearing at me, and I have difficulties standing. And so at this point, his soul says one word to him. She says, surrender. And that's the beginning. At that point, Jung, in his journal, takes his pen, looks at the dead, and this is what he writes. He says, so speak, you dead. And the dead respond. We have come back from Jerusalem where we did not find what we sought. We implore you to let us in. We implore you to let us in. You have what we desire. Not your blood, but your light. That is it. And then begins the seven sermons. You see, like we, we've heard the story of the seven sermons, you know, in memory streams, reflections. Yeah. They had this very compact story, and it's pretty, you know, it's pretty paranormal, strange. But when you read them at what the man was going through in these journals, this journal account, which is, you know, this stuff isn't in, he didn't transcribe all this stuff into the Red Book at all. When you read this, you see the intensity of what he was dealing with, this, you know, the, the sense of the, 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 the spiritual reality, the sense of divinity, of the questions about divinity, of the Sophianic spirit, of the spirit of this world, the Dominus Mundi, the, you know, the Abraxas, who tears people into procreation, and the one God, the star, that is the God of man. These are the sorts of thoughts, the sorts of experiences, realities, really, that Jung is dealing with in this critical period. So there, at that beginning, at that moment, there, on that night, Jung writes the first of the seven sermons to the dead. Of the seven, he actually, when you read the sermon as he wrote it that night, it appears that he thought that this first sermon about the pleroma, about the emptiness and the fullness, that this might have been it all. He may have thought he was finished. And then the next night, another sermon comes. And they come night by night. There's one night, I think Jan, uh, February 3rd, where he writes nothing. He had something else to do. But night by night, he comes back and he addresses the dead. And each of these sermons becomes less long, less lengthy in words until he gets to the seventh sermon. And he's writing this. I mean, he's addressing this horde of spirits who have been molesting him for months. It's interesting when, you know, when, when, when the dead come to him in, in uh, the 20, on the 30th, they say, you have what we desire, not your blood, but your light. You see, the dead who had been coming to him in the fall in these visionary events had wanted his blood. Oh. vampirically. And now they say, it's not your blood we want. It's your light. 
and you know, you, you you have to read all the stuff that happened in the fall, and the sort of the vampiric desire of the dead to you know vampirically you know drink his blood. They wanted his blood, and now the the, the dead say, "We want your light." So you see, you know, people deal with uh, you know Jung in a conceptual framework. They look at Jungian psychology and they have these concepts of archetypes and, you know, collective unconscious and wise old man and, you know, whatever, all that <laughs> yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, right, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, anima and animus and shadow. What they don't understand is these concepts arise somewhere. They're not like gears in this machine of psychic networks. They're not like, like these little, you know, these little things that spin in our heads, you know, one gear engaging another gear and shadow gear hooks in and anima gear hooks in. And, <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, people, so, you know, people conceptualize themselves sometimes, you know, when they're, they, they want it like, you know, rationally and you know, worked out. Yeah. Kind of like Jung by numbers. Yeah, Jung by numbers, Jung by gear numbers. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, gear turns, gear turns, like this is this, that is that, those is those. You can't read this stuff and come to that. And as you go through it, I mean, and, you know, I, what I read you, this is just through 1916. This goes on for, you know, through the 1920s. And it gets more intense, actually. After the seven sermons, Jung said of these seven sermons, these things that were dragged out of him by the dead, where his soul finally said, you know, surrender surrender you know you have this fire burning over your head surrender and speak and so he does you know and what does the soul tell him before that he says you know you know the spirits will will guide you we will do our bit don't worry you know that's that's the seven sermons so jung Later in life, in the in memory streams, reflections, or you know, in his conversations with Anyela Yaffe in 1957, which were transcribed partially in, in memory streams, reflections, um, you know, he says that uh, the seven sermons were a prelude of all he had to offer the world. There he was, 1916, spirits, the devil at his door, surrender, speak. You know, wow. So you see, you know, like the Jung is, um, I try, I've over, you know, you know, over really two decades, I've tried to explain this and it's only becoming, I think, understandable to people recently. I mean, Sonu Shamdasami has really emphasized this himself recently, is that Jung's psychological terminology, the words, you know, archetype, anima, animus, shadow, all that sort of stuff. These are not concepts. They are a type of hermeneutic language for interpreting events of the soul, of the psyche. They do not delimit, they do not confine, they do not contain these words, do not contain those events. But they are a type of language by which we can point at them. They're a language that we can use, you know, a Hermes is like an interpreter. I mean, it comes from, you know, it may etymologically come from the name Hermes, the messenger of the gods, the one who stands between realms, between above and below, the one who stands at the crossroad as the great Herm. 
Hermes is the one at the intersection, the one between. And the Hermeneut is the one who stands interpreting languages of realms above and below, side and side, at the center of this cross of nature. And Jung is here being a hermeneut, an interpreter, providing us a language, a formational language of interpretation of events of the soul. And how deeply that is true, how deeply that goes, I think is only understandable when you see the man's experience. I mean, you're not going to find anima, animus, unconscious, shadow, all that sort of, it's not in there. What's in there is a raw experience of a, of a paranormal, transcendent, visionary, spiritual world, which Jung felt was objectively real, was autonomous, was a fact of human experience. Yeah, well said, and I would certainly agree, but it also seems part of his, one of his many reasons for this journey was to... Uh, find a new god image for the new aeon and that seems to be abraxas right i mean most people assume with the seven sermons of the dead that abraxas is just a great symbol of individuation but it seems we have more than this lens well i think i would say no and no um first of all when jung started this journey he didn't know where the hell he was going or what he was trying to do as he said you know in that first thing i read a huge task lay before me I saw its enormous size, its value and meaning escaped me. Its value and meaning escaped me. He wasn't looking for a new God image. He wasn't looking for a new Aeon. He wasn't looking for anything other than to meet the task that lay before him. I got into the dark and I groped along my path. He didn't know where the hell the path went. That path led inward and downward. Now, what did he discover on that path? What he discovered is that indeed um, a new God image was emerging. It was emerging in his experience. It was emerging in our time. And maybe he was a, um, a prophet of it. You know, that's a hard word to use or a, 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 a scribe of it, a proclaimer. He's the one with the flame above his head running into the villages proclaiming the fire, it happened to him. You know, so I would step back and say that there was no, no, there was no inclination in him to be that. And in fact, repeatedly throughout, you know, from after these things, throughout 1917, 18, uh, all the way through 1920s, he is refusing to be the spokesman, to be the prophet of these voices. I mean, because, you know, this stuff is going on and he could stand up and, you know, proclaim himself a new prophet and publish this all as, you know, his new prophetic work, which he specifically intentionally did not. Although he was tempted, he did not. You know, he said to, you know, a, 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 a dear friend, Carrie Baines, uh, in the 1920s, he said, you know, uh, he felt that these figures had taught, that had talked to him, this, you know, the Elijah and Philemon were the same were, were the exact words, if I remember them, were, were this, the great master, the same who had addressed Buddha, Christ, Mani, and Muhammad. That that's what he had met. That voice he had met was that. But Carrie Baines goes on in her account of what he said. He said, I could not 
I could not let them captivate me. I, I, I had to understand the process. I had to understand this process of what happened to human beings in the depth of this experience. I could not just be its spokesman. I could not let them possess me. I could not let them essentially drink my blood, invade me, be me. I knew them. I had to explain the experience. Now, so that's the first part about, you know, what was his intentionality when he started this? I think his intentionality was not to go fucking crazy, actually. Um, uh, yeah, nobody and, decides that. After. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, it, it's the route he had to take to avoid it, shall we say. Uh, or at least he had to encounter whatever it was that was waiting. Now, with regard to Abraxas, this is really a, a key issue, and I've... You know, my dear friend Stefan Heller wrote a book called The Seven Sermons. Uh, C. Ah, excellent Jung, book. Yeah, yeah, not, yeah, The Gnostic Union, The Seven Sermons yeah. to the Dead. So, uh, and, you know, Stefan's book is so completely right on, right on. He wrote it 40 years ago, and it's very good. But he knew that something was wrong with the image of Abraxas as he had recounted it in that book. And he really wrote another essay that was published just a few years ago about Abraxas, coming to a conclusion that he had been wrong about Abraxas. That Abraxas really is not the god. I mean, Abraxas is not really. To be here. And that's yeah. at gnosis.org if we want to find it? Or? Uh, it's in a series of books called C.G. Jung's Red Book for Our Time. Oh, okay. I, I, I'm, I'm sure I could get you a copy of it if you wish. Sure. Um, that, you know, Abraxas is not the god we should worship. Abraxas, as I read that long note from January 16th, uh, 1916, where Jung really comes to encounter Abraxas or Abraxas, he says, you know, Abraxas is a demon. He's the god of this world. He's no friend of yours. He's no friend of your god. You know, he says, you know, Abraxas is to be feared. Abraxas is to be feared. He, he said, you know, you have one god, and this one god appears later in the black books as Phanes or in other forms. You have the one God, the wonderful, beautiful, kind, the solitary, star-like, unmoving, who leads you among all the darkness and death scares of dreadful Abraxas. I mean, Abraxas is the, you know, the Dominus Mundis, you know, the God of this world. But, and we cannot resist him. We hang in him as one crucified. But this other God, this other fact, is the one we seek. He is the one who gives us joy and peace. Since he is beyond death and beyond what is subject to change. And then, you know, this is this this is his soul speaking to him on January 16th. He is no servant and no friend of Abraxas. You see, there's this differentiation. So Abraxas, you know, appears in the seven sermons and it's really ambiguous there that Abraxas is possibly a, a positive thing. Right. And in Jung's vision, Abraxas is the demiurgic force of Gnostic classical uh, thought and is the demiurgic force in his own experience. It's just you can't get away from him. You live in him. You're stretched out in him as one crucified. And um, it's it, so... There is a duality, and then this second God image really begins to, you know, like, what is this other thing? What is the new God? Not Abraxas. Abraxas is the new God of this new age. Now, I mean, certainly, it's very, very clear in the books and in Jung's writing. 
the new god starts appearing in 1917, 1918, and that image he starts calling Phanes, the newborn god. And of this god, Phanes, um, well, let me, I'll just read, you know, this god, Phanes, this is from March 1918, and, you know, things have really settled down here. After the 1916 period, Jung is increasingly synthesizing and come to balance. And to understand some of this writing, one really should look at his art. There's a, a book recently published called The Art of C.G. Jung, done by the Family Foundation. It has many pictures, paintings, carvings, woodwork. Uh, Jung did all sorts of wood carvings. Uh, he liked to work with his hands to bring these things in him that he was seeing or experiencing into physical forms. And he did several of these paintings. And there are three, four incredible paintings centered around the seven sermons to the dead that absolutely have to be seen. I won't even try to describe them, where it's become so clear what an important offering this was. And in each and every one of those paintings, Phanes, the newborn god, appears at the very top. And he speaks of Phanes, this newborn god. He says, God is, this is March 1, 1918, from the journals. He said, God is like a best friend a beloved, someone who understands. And if a man does not understand and yet loves and thus always does the wrong thing and so torments and ruins others, he behaves like a god. God is all-knowing. Therefore, he is not conscious of his, own knowledge, of his own knowledge. Since he is the world power, he is unconscious of his power. Since he is every single being, he is not conscious of his being. Since man is conscious of his self by virtue of his limitedness and separateness, God can also reveal the fullness of, of his being only if he is drawn by individual men, breathing and breathed, eaten and drunk. Then the God, with human nature added, can so behave and appear that one can say nothing other than that he is conscious of himself as a single man would be, that he loves me as my friend, my brother, my father, my son. You know, he's, he's dealing with all of this stuff again and again. From In March 18th, there's this huge, long... Uh, this is these are things that the soul is teaching Jung during this period. There are other points where Philemon has long homilies to Jung, where he's dealing with this. But this the emergence of a newborn God image, the child God of a new age, really I would say is Phanes in in Jung's uh, in Jung's personal cosmology. And Abraxas after you know 1916. Abraxas hardly ever appears in the black books. Again, I went looking just out of curiosity. I mean, the name comes up three or four more times after 1916 in the journals, but always in a the limited sense of the god of this world, of a demiurgic power, and not as an ultimate power. I hope that's clear. I mean, it's really complicated. This whole issue of Abraxas has been haunting understanding of, you know, the seven sermons for, you know, years. Yeah, because, yeah, the Black Books definitely give context to Abraxas, even though 
uh, yeah, in the seven sermons, he was appears above uh, Satan and Helios, so you assume he's some sort of god above god, right? But yeah. then again, Basilides was pretty clear that uh, Braxus was the chief archon in his writings. <laughs> yeah, but archon, the chief archon, and still an archon. You see, so uh, yeah, and so you know when when Stefan, you know, over the years, over you know whatever forty years or thirty years, that Stefan and I have talked about this. Abraxas really was ambiguous and was only really with the notes in the Red Book, which included some of these notes from the right. Black Book, that, mm -hmm. that the nature of uh, Abraxas as a demiurge and not as the ultimate deity to be worshipped. I mean, he's the one to be feared. You hang in him crucified, like one crucified, Jung said. You can't escape him, but that's not it. He's not the one that we worship, though. One we worship, this one God, or at least the one that you know, Jung was told to worship, you know, the kind, the beautiful, is apart from him, is above him, beyond him. You know, all this stuff that happened to Jung, it's, uh, um, it, it's so strange. It did not continue forever. I mean, there was an intense period when it was almost nightly or several times a week between um, December of 1913 and March of 1914. In the later black books, these entries come down to maybe uh, you know once a week in January and February of 1916 to once a month to every few months, and by the 1920s it's every you know every few months at most. But Jung keeps going back to his soul, who he considers a you know a real fact, when he has a problem that he can't understand. And he goes back to her and he asks her, you know, help me with this problem. And it isn't nightly. I mean, it isn't every moment, but it keeps going back to her. And there's a time in 1923, he goes back to her. You know, uh, I don't have this in front of me in text, but he says, you know, as I remember it, he says, you know, my soul, I, I have not been able to sleep. What's troubling me? I can't sleep. And, you know, the soul re responds to him. And here I'm paraphrasing. He says, you need to go to the next level. Um, you need to go to the next level. And Jung says, well, what is it? And she says, the revelation. You have the revelation. You must pronounce the revelation. And Jung responds, oh, God, I can't do that. I mean, you, 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 what you're thinking, I should publish this red book that I've written, this, you know, and, uh, you know, I can't do that. Uh, so, you know, this, this stuff is going on. These dialogues are going on. Through about you know the mid 1920s, after that, very very few, only occasionally, and then it ends. I mean, he stops writing in the books uh, on a regular basis by the late 1920s. Maybe I think 1932 is one of the last brief entries in these seven journals. There is, however, more that's not disclosed. There is a mystery waiting for us. Oh, there's more! Wow. Yeah, there are 60 pages unaccounted for in the last journal, and uh, when the journal was published. Uh, it was stated that the following 60 page or the following pages were not part of this current material. Something happened, and I don't know what's in those 60 pages, but I have a pretty darn good idea. In 1944, Jung almost died. He had a near-death experience, and he went through a series of incredible visionary encounters that entirely reoriented the work of his last uh, decades of life. And uh, he wrote about this in Memories, Dreams, Reflections. He wrote a you know, he wrote about it elsewhere in letters. 
And it really reformed his work. And in the works he published after those visions, which happened in, you know, started in, in, in February of 1944 after he fell and, you know, had a pulmonary embolus and a heart attack and nearly died for months. And I suspect that Jung recorded those visions in the last portion of the Black Book because they're the only thing we know about in the last part of his life that would fit uh, with the Black Book's. And those visions actually entirely returned him to the Black Books and to the Red Book. And after that, he wrote the four great works, which I call the last quartet, the great last quartet of C.G. Jung, the books that really summarized his work and returned in his um, mature public voice to the material that is in the Red Book and the Black Books. And those works are... Um, you know, well, the, the last three principally are Aeon, Answer to Job, and Mysterium Conjunctionis. The one that he was working on when he broke his foot, uh, broke his leg, got the blood clot, got the pulmonary embolism, had the heart attack, is called Psychology of the Transference. And he felt he had made a mistake in the psychology of the transference because he had been talking about some of these powers as if they were psychological. And he wrote it, he wrote later in the letter, he says, you know, these are gods. I was approaching them without respect. I was approaching them without, you know, seeing that these powers are gods. So psychology of the transference was the first one. Then came uh, Ion, then, uh, you know, Mysterium Conjunctionis, answer, answer to Job. And Answer to Job, if you look at it, this book, you know, written, published, I think in 1951, written around 1950, Answer to Job really is a recension of the visionary material in the Black Books from January uh, through uh, winter of 1918. These are the things he had been dealing with back then that he finally put into form in his uh, discussion in Answer to Job. So I guess in summary, what I'd say is the Black Books are the basis of the Red Book. The Black Books extend for a decade beyond the last text we find in the Red Book. And the Black Books and the Red Book together are the corpus of Jung's most creative period of life and are the foundation of everything he did thereafter. Jettison all your concepts. Go back to the source. Go back to the experience. And you'll see why C.G. Jung was C.G. Jung. I think we we are at the end. First, uh, well, I'm proud I have not called Vance Lance or Lance Vance in the interview, <laughs> so I am I'm not getting that old. But uh, first of all, Vance, thanks for uh, keeping us company on this journey. Oh, I did more than that. I was uh, listening uh, quite intently and learning, so which is something I always like to do. So thank you very much, Lance. I'm glad well, to make your acquaintance you. here. Thank you, Vance. I have to tell you, in my childhood, I was often called Vance, which was a much more common, which was a much more common name when I was a child than Lance was. And uh, and Miguel and, and and to you both, thank you so much for inviting me and allowing me to ramble on for oh, far wonderful. longer than I should have. No, it was wonderful. Thank you very much for your time and all the work you do. And there you have it. The first part of our interview with Lance Owens on Jung's Black Books. With this gnosis, it's the end of the world and I feel fine. In our second part, Lance will talk about near-death experiences as they relate to Jung. 
Lance will discuss Jung's answer to Job, the psyche, and a lot about Gnosticism in general. He'll disclose whether Jung took drugs and what might have been Jung's other techniques to alter his state of mind to have visions. Lenz will also share whether Jung believed in evil. And much more. Beyond the second part, and as mentioned in the intro, I'll include my previous interview with Lance where he discusses Jung's Red Book and the Gnostic pedigree of J.R.R. Tolkien. Don't miss it. I won't go into drivel detail about getting the full show and other merrific bonuses for becoming an AB Prime member or Patreon at Patreon. I'm sure many of you know the drill, but if not, Go to the God Above God Dad Cam or message my ass. Please continue helping me grow this Red Bill Gavateria and support other alternative media and artists. The old ways no longer work, and the black hole sun is enveloping the world. We need the contraband truths of the Gnostics and their brethren in the esoterica more than ever. And Aeonbyte is a primary font for this. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self. Here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. Mm-hmm.